you know, one of the things that I, when I was a, a political science major for one semester, and that brought me in touch with a guy named Larry Gostin, who was, um, I think he was president of the student body at the time or a vice president. And the last time I saw him was on Nightline on ABC. He was being interviewed, or no, no, it was, it was MSNBC just last year. And he, he is a big, big lawyer down in, in Washington, D.C., are you going to be talking to him? We just finished with him. We just finished. Get, get out of town. An hour ago. <laughs> an hour ago? Yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You know what we used to do? It, uh, there was this this jukebox in the student union. And whenever I would be in the student union and Larry would be there, one of us would run over, put a quarter in and play Rock and Robin. And we would jitterbug till we almost, you know, passed out. And I, he would even like do this thing where I'd, I'd hook arms with him and he'd flip me over his head. Hmm. I was much younger and lighter then. <laughs> but I, and I really had like this crush on him too. Two students who haven't talked in over 50 years, both affected by the activist nature of the SUNY Brockport campus in 1970 with different backgrounds, different life paths. And we met them both on the same day, accidentally. Recently, while interviewing singer, songwriter, and entertainer Christine Lavin, class of 73, she asked us about another alum she'd seen on TV. She wanted to know if we were going to talk to Larry Gossett, who went from student activist, civil libertarian, to now one of the world's leading experts on public health and the law. We had already talked to Larry. So today, we'll start a two-part podcast about two successful alum with completely different life paths who intersected jitterbugging in the student union, and at a student protest in 1970. Welcome to where Golden Eagles Soar, the SUNY Brockport Alumni Podcast, hosted by me, Michael Doyle, and Carrie Gotham, Director of Alumni Engagement. Today, we'll meet Larry Gostin, Class of 71, Duke Law, Class of 74. He was a Fulbright Fellow, a Harvard Law Professor, and now is Professor of Law at Georgetown University and Professor of Public Health at Johns Hopkins. But Larry's future was not preordained, as we learned when we spoke with him recently. You know, you have to kind of understand where I came from. You know, I'd, I'd, um, you know, I grew up very poor, um, and my mother had just died um, young, and um, I'd never been away from Queens, New York, in my life. And my father just put me on a bus to um, Brockport. Um, I wasn't a particularly um, great student in high school, my, um, but I never um, imagined that um, I could be what I am today. But Brockport changed all that. You know, I really owe Brockport, you know, for actually completely transforming my life. Larry, you mentioned that, that Brockport changed your life and, and you kind of came into the school with kind of low expectations and, and you transformed yourself. I want to explore that a little bit. Was there a, was, what was it at the college that got you to see a path? Was there a mentor? Was there a role model? Was there professors? How did you make that turn from, I guess, a, what kind of sounds like low expectations, maybe you had them or other people had them of you, to, to, to begin that process to then enroll in law school? What was it? You know, it was a combination of things. I mean, yes, um, there were um, 
a few professors that really took me under their wing. Um, that was one of the things. The other is just really very, very simple. You know, actually did well. Um, you know, I remember, you know, getting my first report card, but I got, I think, you know, all A's and two B's in my first report card from Brockport. I'd never seen anything like that from myself. It just never had happened. And I never got less than an A after that and graduated at the top of the class. So it was just the fact that I could be successful when I never really thought that I could. Um, I think that was the second thing um, that, that, and the third was probably not very well known, but this was the Vietnam era. Um, and it was tumultuous at um, Brockport, just as, it, you know, right after the Kent State shootings and others. And I was one of the student leaders. In fact, it was you know, basically the, you know, the, I was living in the, the, um, you know, uh, the, the African-American house, which was kind of a place, you know, for kind of Black Panthers and others. And I was very radicalized and um, I took over the heart building and, 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 and then became a student vice president with a black president. And it all, you know, just, it changed, changed the way I saw myself and then I, you know, decided, you know, I was a psychology major and I decided, well, really, I want to change the world. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go to law school. I really don't think I would be any, you know, be much of a, have made much of a mark in America and the world um, were it not for Brockport. So talk a little bit about that time on campus. So there was a, a, a famous incident and I'm going to say the year you in, in 70 or 71, um, where, um, you know, there was a fire, I think, at the at the uh, what was called the Black Student Union at the time. Um, yeah, I was going to get yeah, into that. that. that can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Because that so having been a student, I got there in 75, was the BSG president in 79, stayed there for five years. I had read about it. You know, we had read everything that was in the student mm. government files, but had never had a conversation firsthand with anybody yeah. who was there. Can you talk a little bit about that time and what was going on? I yeah, I never really talk about it much because it was a very tumultuous time and people may not even quite understand it but you know basically um I, as i was saying i was living with with kind of very radical roommates um we took over it was and you know i was you know i had a peaceful protest at the heart building but at the same time there was very there was a lot of violence including um that the burning down of of that building and and deaths, and you know, I think there were four four deaths, and the FBI became involved, and um, I was interviewed, obviously, but I had nothing to do with it. Um, it was a very it was a very searing and painful experience because, you know, it showed I think you know the good and the bad, um, the really the the very very noble and the very evil side of you know anger and protest. People don't realize that that was a time that was just, if not more, you know, more conflict, more tension. And so 
The good, of course, is, I think, you know, peaceful protest against war, against racism and other evils. Um, and of course, the bad is when it turns violent. Um, and Brockport was an illustration of both at the time. I went on to go to Duke Law and then Oxford University and then Harvard and then now Georgetown and others spent the rest of their lives in prison. It's really very, very tragic. I've never really talked about. You went to law school and now you're, you're a leading expert in the law and public health maybe in the world, right? Um, yeah. how, did you, how did you come to have that area of focus with your, with your law degree? What, what brought you to that? Right. Well, you know, I, um, when I graduated law school, I had, you know, choice among three jobs. You know, one was um, kind of a Wall Street, you know, high-level law firm, you know, black shoe law firm. The other, New York um, legal aid, poverty law and the third was on a, a Fulbright fellowship to Oxford, and I chose the latter one. And then I became uh, the legal director of the National Association for Mental Health, and I brought a whole lot of landmark cases before the European Court of Human Rights as an American lawyer. I I, re, I wrote the Mental Health Act in the UK, um, and then became. Um, the head of uh, Liberty, it's, it's really the ACLU of Great Britain, and I led it during its 50th anniversary. It was formed by George Orwell and E.M. Foster, and that was the time of the miners' strike in England. It was a terribly tumultuous time with Margaret Thatcher in office, and, and I and kind of I lived through that. And then when I finished um, both my mental health work and my civil liberties work, I came back to the U.S. to Harvard, and I worked on the AIDS epidemic, um, and then public health, um, and now global health. And so kind of it emerged, you know, and the, the title of the autobiographical article is called From a, from a Civil Libertarian to a Sanitarian, which kind of think I says it, says it all. I mean, I used to, I am very much a civil libertarian, believe in civil liberties, but I also think that, you know, particularly in the United States, but also other places, we've tended to think too much about me and my rights. You know, what what does government and society owe me? And we've not really thought as much about what do we owe our society, our families, our communities, our neighbors, our country, our world. And I think we've seen that sense of common purpose and the common good unravel in recent years in the United States, particularly in the COVID-19 pandemic, where virtually everything is political and we've lost trust in all of our, you know, scientific and public health institutions from the NIH to CDC through, through to um, uh, the World Health Organization. And of course, now I'm, I'm the director of the World Health Organization Center on Global Health Law. So I work closely with the White House and CDC and, um, and, and WHO. Actually, one of my oldest friends is Tony Fauci. We've, we've been friends ever since the AIDS epidemic, the very first days of the AIDS epidemic. So we go back you know, over 30 years together. That's really 
the modern American dynamic in the COVID crisis, right? Is that connection, that disconnect between my liberties and my obligation to society. Is there, is there, is it a legal problem or is it a moral issue in the United States that, that can't be solved through law? How, how do you see that dynamic changing, if at all, in the future? What do we need to do? Well, you know, the United States is a very wounded country, I'm very sad to say, because we, we see, you know, so many people see people of, you know, different, you know, the diff- different people as enemies, you know, you know, if you're, if you're rural, you see the city dwellers as, as your enemy. If you're Democrat, you see Republicans and vice versa. Um, you know, there's, you know, all this, you know, canceling and all this, you know, when I, I get death, I get death threats and, and really foul language, you know, sent to me all the time by people I don't even know, simply because I'm, you know, trying to um, stand up for public health and science. It's a very, it's hard in the United States. It won't be solved by law. In fact, law is making it worse because the Supreme Court is really dividing us and it's become almost a political branch of government. We really just need to, you know, open our hearts and look to our na- our neighbors and stop blaming them and start listening to each other. I got to follow up, Larry, just a specific around the COVID-19. It's the, what should, here we are two plus years into it. Um, what do you think we need to do differently right now or moving forward from your opinion? If the, if the Omicron variant is as contagious as we think it is, um, it's going to, it's going to be very difficult to prevent infections and reinfections. Um, the Delta variant in and of itself is already one of the most contagious pathogens on the planet. It's nearly as contagious as chickenpox. And everybody knows if you're in the room with somebody with chickenpox, you get chickenpox. And then if Omicron is is nearly twice or could be twice that infectious, eventually, probably, everybody, as the German health minister said, everybody's either going to uh, get vaccinated, recover from COVID, or die of COVID. Um, and so what we need to do is make sure that when you get COVID, as you probably will eventually, it's going to become endemic, you want to be protected. Um, truth is that that you know full vaccination really is our only method of doing that. And I'm not saying that as a political statement. I'm saying it as a scientific and and humanity and and a human statement that you know we want to that you know people's lives are important we we don't want to lose fathers sons daughters mothers um we want we want to or even children um who could get long covid we want everybody as protected as we possibly can yeah just one thing i made a note earlier larry you said there were folks that believed in you when you were at Brockport really helped you um not sure if you remember any of the names or any of those folks that kind of gave you a nudge yeah yeah of course i do yeah um uh marty lindauer um was in um psychology um and oh my gosh my my actual 
favorite, and I'm blanking on his name. How could I do that? Oh, um, Duncan. Um, let me just <laughs> Ray Duncan. Ray Duncan. Yeah. Yes. Would be the two, and 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 Herb Fink. Um, uh, two in psychology, one in political science. Um, they would be two, but also in like in small ways. You know the, um, you know I've never trained in music. I don't know music. I was never, when I growing up, you know, we didn't play piano or, you know, I didn't learn anything and I couldn't read music, but I took a mu- music classes and took several of them and did really, really well in them. The music class that I took, I had to do one big dissertation and it was on um, Brahms' uh, second symphony. To this day, I, you know, I listen to Brahms all the time. When I was in Brockport, I actually listened to that symphony on a record player, an actual record player at the library, every day for a year. That same symphony, <laughs> and so it's given me a love of music. But I owe, I owe really a lot to Brockport, and um. My wife and I have started uh, uh, the Gene and Larry Gostin um, scholarship fund to try to help, you know, what what I what I high what I call high need high merit students um, uh, that that want to come to Brockport and transform their lives. His first trip outside of Queens, New York, on a Greyhound bus to enroll at college at Brockport, and now Larry is one of the leading voices on healthcare and the law. His journey was influenced by his time as a student activist and his professors at Brockport. And yes, he remembers jitterbugging in the student union with Christine Lavin. And what of Christine's career? Let's hear what Emmy Award-winning actor Jeff Daniels has to say about Christine. She climbed onto the stage and swung the guitar around like John Wayne reining in his horse. Fast behind that guitar came a smile as wide as the stage. And then that laugh. Like a drunken sparrow, she cackled, sharing this wonderful moment in life with a room full of strangers who, before anyone knew it, had become her friends. Christine may have started as a folk singer at protests on campus, but her career has spanned the decades as a singer, songwriter, and entertainer. And yes, you'll learn about how she met Jeff Daniels along the way. On the next edition of our alumni podcast, where Golden Eagles soar. 